First Kings chapter 20. What we never can get tired of or hear too much about is the glory of God. We live for God's glory. We serve for God's glory. We suffer for God's glory. And what we need more of continuously, constantly, is to behold God's glory. We do that as we look upon Christ, as we look upon his, his death, his resurrection, his substitutionary atonement, but also as we look upon his nature, that when we look upon Christ, we're looking at God because he is one in essence with the Father and the Spirit. So even when we come to this random book in the Old Testament, we can at least ask, what is this telling us about God? What is this telling us about God and his kingdom? How does this fit into the overall timeline of the Old Testament? And how does it fit into salvation history? We don't want to simplify it when we come to an Old Testament passage and just moralize it and simply just saying, you know, don't be like Ahab. Although, don't be like Ahab. <laughs> but we don't want to also moralize it. But we also don't want to also give a, a chief to service to the author's intent by allegorizing a text in the Old Testament, by just seeking to say, well, this is this, this represents Christ, this represents this, and just give a grave disservice to the author's authorial intent by just allegorizing it either. So we don't want to moralize it. We don't want to allegorize it. We want to see what is the author intending to do. And I think one chief question we can always ask of the text is what is this telling us about who God is in relationship to his people? That we should always walk away beholding the glory of God and in awe of it. And so in this particular account, how does it fit into God's storyline of salvation? How does it magnify God? And here, how does it magnify God in his glory? I think we need to be reminded of, of, of this. No matter where you're at in your Christian walk, no matter how you showed up this morning, we need to be reminded of our necessity to see and to behold God's glory. And not just to know about it, and not just to just give you know, head knowledge to it or uh, credence to it, but we want to actually embrace and, and, and delight in God's glory. So whether you're excelling in your Christian walk, to beholding God's glory, it emboldens you and prepares you for even trials in your Christian walk. And if you come even weak or fragile or doubting, beholding God's glory helps us, help, helps us as we struggle in our Christian walk because we're strengthened by what we need most, whether we realize it or not, and that is his glory. I need his strength. And so as you come to these Old Testament texts, we need to see how is this uh, upholding and portraying God's glory clearly that I need to see. Because our problem in life is that we do not behold God's glory as we ought. Now, 1 Kings 20, it's a, it's a hefty chapter, hefty, hefty chapter. But 1 Kings 20, it centers on the preservation and exaltation of God's name, even in the presence of wickedness. It centers on the preservation and exaltation of God's name, even in the presence of wickedness. And whether that wickedness is coming from other nations or from even the king of Israel, what we see here is that he remains God. That he remains God. And most importantly, 
the only God, that he remains God. Now, we're in 1 Kings chapter 20 without context, but I want to, as we kind of introduce this drama, this grand cinematic performance here, we want to see who are the main characters. We need to know who are the main characters. The main characters in this drama involve King Ahab and King Ben-Hadad from Aram. Now, first, King Ben-Hadad, he's the, he's the son of the king mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 15, and he's the king of Aram, as I said. And Aram was a loose confederation of just these towns and, and settlements that spread over what is now called Syria, as well as some parts of Babylonia from which Jacob and Abraham came. So King Benadad, this king of Syria, king of Aram, a great figure. His dad shows up chapters before here, and now we see his son here in chapter 20. The second character you see is King Ahab. King Ahab, one of the kings of Israel. If you remember your Old Testament history, what happens in 1 Kings? Like, what is the whole king book about here in 1 Kings? About this one united kingdom now becomes divided, and why does it become divided? Because of idolatry, ultimately. And so you have Israel split into two, two, two camps, essentially. You have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. And King Ahab is just one of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. And as we see here, he is one wicked king. One wicked king and probably one of the most wicked kings in their history. And so here, he was the same king who went against the prophet Elijah, if you remember where at. Mount Carmel, a couple chapters before here in chapter 18, when he went head-to-head with Elijah, God's prophet. And what was the whole drama about there when he went up against Elijah? Elijah here was displaying before the people, the pagans, the, the, the believers. He was displaying for all to see Yahweh is God and Yahweh alone is God. And we see that clearly in chapter 18 when he goes head-to-head with these prophets of Baal. These prophets of Baal have have special powers. They ascend to this this special god, Baal. And what happens? He's humiliated before him. Because if you remember this account, they, they try to, they set up two altars, one for Baal, one for Yahweh. And Elijah says, here, set up your altar and have your god, who is powerful, destroy this altar with fire. Do it. And they try all the way till evening cutting themselves, dancing around. They look foolish. And then Elijah prays to Yahweh. And he says, God, so that they may know that you are God, bring down fire. And what happens instantly? It's consumed with with, with fire, instantly. And what happens before there? They see Yahweh is God. And so this character Ahab here, this wicked king here, he clearly already has seen God in his majestic performance in destroying the altar with fire from heaven. He saw this Yahweh is God, even from beginning in first chapter, first Kings chapter 16, when it introduces King Ahab. It's interesting how the author describes him, because in chapter 16, verse 31, it says of this very King Ahab that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. The king of Israel worshipped Baal, and he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. So not only is he worshipping, he built a house for this pagan god, and he also made the Asherah. And Ahab says, verse 33, that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel more than all the kings of Israel who were before him. It's not good here. 
that this Ahab, Ahab is set up here for just destruction, this wicked king. He did more evil than all those before him. So you have two characters, King Ben-Hadad and King Ahab. But there's a third character that is the most important in this drama, and that is Yahweh. Yahweh, that he is Lord. As you know in the Bible, if you see Lord in all caps, it's, it's saying it's the covenant name of God, Yahweh. And so he is the main character. In this book of Kings, this, this book of Kings, which is detailing the kings, we should rightly ask now, because King Ahab comes in, in chapter 16, and he's here all the way to the end of 1 Kings. And this book of Kings, if you've read it here, you see how time and time again it says this king existed, he did this, and then he died. And this king did this, he did this, and he died, right? It's very short. But yet, for this book to spend chapters on this one king, we should rightly ask, why is this author spending so much time on this one king? Why is he spending this many chapters from 16 all the way to the end of the book on King Ahab? What's going on here? We're going to survey the approach, survey this entire chapter. And I think, like I said, it's a lot, but I think we can get through it in the two hours that we have. (laughs) What? Why are you laughing? (laughs) That's so much that's so much I have, right? That's so much time. I'm just kidding. But in all seriousness, uh, together it, it builds to one important theme: the preservation and exaltation of God's name in the presence of wickedness. And this is seen through four movements through this chapter, and each increasingly building upon another to a definite end. So we must see the preservation and exaltation of God's name. Let's look at the first movement here. First movement is simply here described in the first battle. Because this drama begins with King Ben-Hadad coming against Israel. Now at this time, as you previously in these chapters, Israel went through a drought and they're in a famine. And so now, likely taking opportunity of this famine week in Israel, King Ben-Hadad comes against Israel for a siege. And from the looks of it, the way it's set up here, you want to, as you read Old Testament narrative, don't just read what it's saying, but read how it's being said. Because the author here is saying a lot. It's like a movie. If you're watching a movie, you're not just seeing, like, what the characters are saying, but how is the director orchestrating this story? Like, what is he focusing on and why? And here, as he's setting up this drama here, it's set up here for a grave here performance here where Israel seems like they're in trouble. Because look how it's described here. He came against them, verse 1, with, in his army with 32 kings with him and horses and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria and fought against it. So immediately here you have this one king with not only just by himself, but 32 other kings. Likely these other kings of the other small towns and settlements around that came with him. And there came up not just with kings, but it says with horses and with chariots against little old Israel. Now you would first see, like, this is not good. You see all these soldiers on the mountain coming down. This does not look good for Israel. Now look what he wants in verse 3. He says to Ahab, I want your silver and your gold, he says. They are mine. Your most beautiful wives and children, those two, mine. I want it. Now, in response to this, look how Ahab responds to him. Because he says this, like, that seems pretty offensive here. You're coming against me, you want my money, you want women, children, like, you want all that? But king of Israel replied in verse 4, it is according to your word. Now, how does he address him? My lord? Huh? Oh, king, I am yours and all that I have? 
this king of Israel, the king of Israel, God's people, is referring to this pagan ruler. Oh, king, all I have is your Lord, bowing down before him. It's almost as if like North Korea was coming against America and we see on television the president of the United States appealing to him. Oh, king, my Lord, all that we have is your, excuse me? (laughs) Like, wait, wait a minute, you're bowing down immediately to him? Like, this is what's set up here. Ahab comes against him, and he's like, okay, Lord, let me just, let me bow down. Like, this, what I have is yours. Here, here you go. Now, this text doesn't tell us all the events around them and maybe King Benhadad's motives or even Ahab's motives. Because at that time, Assyria was an empowering nation. They were coming to power, gaining strength. So who knows? Maybe Ahab's thinking, I need an ally against Assyria. Or maybe even King Benadad's thinking, I need this territory as I'm coming up against Assyria. So we don't know all their motives. The text is not explicit, so we don't need to be explicit. But we know here, they're coming against Israel. He's coming for blood. And Ahab right now is saying, my Lord, it's yours. But then King Benadad hears this. And what does he do? Does he say, okay, let's do this? No, he goes even further. He pushes them even further. It's like the bully on the playground. He pushes them. Say, oh, you ain't going to do nothing? So let me push you harder. And look what he does. Then he sent messengers again. Surely I have sent to you, saying, verse 5, you shall give me your silver and your gold and your wives and your children. Now, verse 6, but about this time tomorrow, I will send my servants to you, and they will search your house and the houses of your servants and whatever is desirable in your eyes, and they will take it in their hand and carry it away. So not only am I going to take gold, silver, wives, children, but you know what? I'm basically going to go to your friends' houses, and I'm going to take whatever is nice and desirable, and we're going to take that as well. So now he's going even further, this bully on the playground. And so at this point, King Ahab is like, okay, he probably, now he's doing what he probably should have done initially. He appeals to the elders. And whenever you appeal to the elders as a king, you need to appeal to the elders of the land before making a rash decision, such as war. <laughs> and so this is what he does. The king of Israel called, verse 7, all the elders of the land and said, please observe, see how this man, he's looking for trouble. For he sent to me for the wives and my children and my silver and my gold, and I didn't refuse him. So at this point now, the elders hear this, and look what they say. All the elders and all the people said to him, do not listen or consent. Okay. So now, okay, this bull is coming to you. Next time he asks for your lunch money, say no. That's a good plan, but what am I going to do if he knocks me out? (laughs) So the elders are saying, don't consent to him. That's, That's good. I appreciate the boldness, but where are they getting this boldness from? This king is coming with you with his chariots and horses, 32 other kings, and you're just saying, don't listen to him? Do you realize what's coming next? They don't have any plan, but they're just saying, we just got to stop him. So at this point now, you have all of these soldiers, kings, horses, chariots, all coming around to small town Israel, and all they have in their solution is, just say no. (laughs) So what do you think is going to come for them next? It's nothing but destruction for them. You're in trouble. If your best objection now is to just say no, you're in trouble because you got a whole army and nations around you at this point. You're set up for destruction. You're in trouble, right? Now, that would be the case, but now Ahab takes their advice, and he says, basically, no, we're not going to do it. And King Benadad is arrogant. He says, he says in verse, 30, uh, verse 10, May the Lord God, or may God, may the gods do so to me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria will suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. In other words, you ain't gonna listen. I'm gonna, I'm gonna crush you to pieces, and that could just be so much that we can just hold you in our hands and just crumble you because we'll just destroy you. And then the king of Israel replied in verse 11, "Well, let not him who girds on his armor boast like him who takes it off." 
So now we got smack talking at play. First, he's like, okay, I'm coming against you. I'm going to crush you. And King Ahab, still confident, and I don't know why, <laughs> but he's still confident. And he says, yeah, well, don't let him who, who, girds, who, who girds his armor boast like he's taking it off. Like, what? what? Like, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> and essentially, he's saying here, don't count your chickens before they hatch. Like, you think you're so bold, but you don't know what's going to happen yet. Now, again, he's bold, but why? Who is King Ahab going to appeal to? So he's still boldness and still set up for defeat, failure at this point. And so when King Benhadad hears this in verse 12, he, as he was drinking, getting drunk before a war, I don't know why, um, he said to his servants, all right, station yourselves. Let's go to war. All right, he wants this. He wants the smoke. Let's, let's give it to him. So now Israel's in trouble. They're ready for defeat. Now, all the while, in this, grand, this grand picture is set up for Israel's utter defeat until this happens. What happens? The third character comes in. Yahweh comes in. Now, at this point, with all that we know about Ahab so far, has he deserved God's intervention? If this wicked nation is going to crush them, do, do they deserve to be helped by Yahweh? Have they given any sort of worship or praise to Yahweh thus far? No. But yet, who comes in as a third character? It is Yahweh, that he steps in. In fact, verse 13, it says, now behold. This word behold here is an interjection. In the, in the midst of this narrative here, a story happening now, you see, behold. It's interjecting, saying something is happening. It stops the play now. Behold, now what's, what do we see here? A much-needed intervention of Yahweh. And look what he says. Yahweh came by a prophet, we don't even know, this unnamed prophet. He approached King Ahab of Israel and said, thus says Yahweh, have you seen all this great multitude? In other words, do you you know what's ahead of you? Behold, I will deliver them into your hand today, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. So you see here, it's set up for utter destruction and defeat And Yahweh comes in here. You see how impossible it is for you right now. Do you see this great multitude? I will give it to to you right now, this day. And why? Just so I can just defeat them? That's going to happen. But so that you may know that I am Yahweh. That's why he's doing it. It's repeated previously, if you remember from the account with Elijah, when Ahab sees the, 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 the fire fall down before the whole account, when Elijah prays, as I said in verse 36 of chapter 18, when Elijah says he prays, he says, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. And when Elijah prays this, and when God does it, who was also present at that time? Ahab. That Ahab himself witnessed this. And a prophet comes to Ahab again and says, I am going to defeat them so that you may know that I am Yahweh. Again, Yahweh is getting an opportunity to say, this is Yahweh. I am Yahweh, and there is no one else. I am greater than Baal. I'm greater than all else. And so Yahweh steps in again merci- mercifully and says, Yahweh, I'm doing this, or Ahab, I'm doing this so that you may know that I am Yahweh, that I am God. And so eventually after that, Ahab says, well, how are you going to do this? And 
says in the following verses, basically God tells him, I want you to take these young men, a handful of young men, 232 of them, and I want you to muster them up and then get all the men of Israel, and I want you to come up. But he says 7,000 here. He's limited to a small number here, a small insignificant number, because has God ever needed massive numbers to do his will? Has God ever needed man's strength to do his will? Never. So just get 232 young men and then muster up the rest of your men, and I'll handle the rest. He says, well, what are you going to do? Am I going to do this, or or am I waiting for him? And God tells him, no, no, you go. And so all the while, Ben-Hadad is getting drunk still again, he says, that he's getting drunk, drinking with his friends, and they tell him, hey, you got 232 young men coming out here. Now, we can ask the question, in this movie, like, you have all these people coming against you. Why are you going to send just 232 just young men? These are the young lads. They're, they're, They're probably having been prepped completely for war. They don't look as mighty and strong as some well-nourished men. So why is God sending these 232 young men first? Because, well, what happens? They, they say, hey, Benadad, you got 232 young men out here. Oh, they're from Israel? And so Benadad, oh, this young men, they look weak. They don't look like a threat. Okay, well, what, what do they want? Well, take them alive. I don't care what they want. Just take them alive. Let's, let's see what they have. And so it's really just a ploy here because he doesn't realize an ambush is coming. And so he sees these small 232 young men coming out to him and says, bring them here. But what happens after that? Verse 19, so these went out from the city, the young men of the rulers of the provinces and the army which followed them. And what happened? They took the bait. That's what happened. But in Verse 20's words, they killed each his man, and the Arameans fled, and Israel pursued them, and Benadad, king of Aram, escaped on a horse with horsemen. The king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and killed the Arameans with a great slaughter. Now, this seemingly threat in the beginning of all of these horses and chariots and kings coming out against Israel, which seemed to be an utter defeat without any possibility of recovery, what happens? Yahweh steps in and he utterly wipes them out. So immediately we can see here this impossible situation. How are they saved? Because Yahweh intervenes. Now does something stand out to you now after this? Because it says after that, Benadad, he ran away. And after that, in verse 22, it says how the prophet came near to the king and said to him, you know, go straighten yourself again and observe and see what you have to do because at the turn of the year, the king Aram, he's going to come up against you again. So after this happens, another prophet comes to him and says, I know you won this battle, but you've got to be strengthened because at the turn of the year, he's coming back again. So a prophet comes to it again, comes to Ahab and says, you won this time, but it's not over. Strengthen yourselves because he's coming back. He's looking to the future, and God's saying it's going to happen again. But in this account here, just what we read, does anything stand out to you about what's missing in this whole account so far? That it's already set up. All these kings came against them. They conquered them without any rationale of any human reasoning or logic. But is, what's missing here? Any, any response of praise? Does, does Ahab say, oh, he is he is Yahweh is God. Does Ahab respond in worship? Does Ahab give glory to God? Does Ahab finally realize he truly is the only God? You see, that's, that's missing here in this context, that there's no response here of what was just miraculously done before his eyes. There's no response. Keep it, while Yahweh is working Ahab's life, He's simultaneously preserving the lives of an unworthy and idolatrous Israel. 
But what's the main point that we're looking at here? The preservation and exaltation of Yahweh's name. Because look what happens now after this. They win. Now, the Arameans, they respond. Why did they win? Verse 23. Now, the servants of the king of Aram said to him, you know what? Their gods, their gods are gods of the mountains. No, therefore, they were stronger than we. But rather, let fight, let's fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. All right, so now they won or they lost the battle. And what is the rationale for losing? Well, you see, Israel's God. So their God, that God he's a God of the mountains. And no, we, we fought them in the Sierras, and so that's why we lost. Because it was in the mountains. Aha. But if we go to Death Valley, let's go to the desert. Let's go to the plains, the flat fields. If we go there, their God is not power enough to, to, to win there. So how about we just go back and fight them again in a different region? Because their God certainly can't do this again if they're not in the mountain. It's like the classic illustration of poking the bear. Like, you don't know what you're messing with here. Like, you now are just attacking God's name and God's glory at this point here. The only reason why they won is their God, he's limited in power to this geographical region. And that's why we won. They view this inexplicable defeat with this. Nope. We lost because they're, they're God's God of mountains. So let's fight them in the plains. Let's go there to the flatland, and then we'll be all right. And has it ever gone well for anyone to mock Yahweh? Ever. Has it ever gone well? And as the old adage goes, you know, you've got it coming to you at this point. But here, God doesn't need to prove anything. It's not like he's responding because of, like, oh, I need to, to, to cover here. I need to make, make, make sure they know how good I am. No, no, no. God doesn't need to prove anything to anyone, but God does oppose the proud. And this is what this wicked nation is, going against God in their own false pride. And what God is going to do, he's going to ultimately humble them. And so this goes to our second movement, which, for no surprise, is a second battle. So you see now, this happens again. Because Ben-Hadad now lost, he flees, he, he survives, and then now what do they try to do? They try to do it again. But this time, when they come back, Israel is prepared for this battle. And why are they prepared? Because who warned them of what's coming? The prophet who told them, he's going to come back again, so strengthen yourselves. And they did. They were prepared now for the second battle. He tries it again with another army and with now a new flat territory. But it's the same setup. And, and look what they're doing here. In verse 25, and, and muster yourselves, because they say, he, he's listening to his servants, because the servants tell King Abinadad, you, you know, it's the God of the mountains, so we need to come back in a flatter land, and now we've got to just muster ourselves again. And verse 25, remove the kings, each from his place, and put captains in their place. And then muster an army, like the army that you have lost, horse for horse, chariot for chariot, and then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. And what did he do? He listened to their voice and did so. So already here, they said they're replacing horse for horse, chariot for chariot. They're coming back again. Same force, same might. Maybe the second time we'll prevail against this weak nation. But what he doesn't realize is who they're coming against. Because the Lord interjects again in verse 28. Then a man of God came, an unnamed prophet, and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus, thus says Yahweh the Lord. Because the Arameans have said, the Lord is the God of the mountains, but he is not the God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give this great multitude into your hand, 
and you shall know that I am the Lord. Sound familiar? Again, a second time just in this chapter, because they said this, they provoked me to anger, but I'm going to do this again so that you may know that I am the Lord. This is the third time this wicked, hardened, pagan, reprobate king has heard this, that I am Yahweh. And how does he respond to this? Does he respond the right way yet? So he says now, there's a battle's brewing again. The setup is seen as Israel here is, con- is contrasted, it says, as, as two little goats. If you see there in verse 27, the sons of Israel were mustered, and they were provisioned, right, because they knew, and went to meet them. And the seven sons of Israel camped before them like, like two little flocks of goats. But the Arameans filled the country. Again, how is it being described here? You see the first setup here with 32 kings, chariots, horses. And now you see here, they're going again. And how is Israel described? This massive empire? Like two little flocks of goats. Two little, little cute ones, right? Ones you can pet, right? Like the flocks of goats are smaller than flocks, flocks of sheep. This is a small arena here. He's saying here, they're like just two small armies. But what about the Arameans? They fill the entire country. The same setup you see round two with this weakened, fragile Israel who has a great God against these Arameans who are proud and going against the God of all nations. And so even though here, the setup here, which, which to the audience, the viewer, you would see, you're in trouble, he's describing this clearly so that we can know that Yahweh is God. So the result is, after this point, they come to battle. In verse 29, they camped one over against the other for seven days, and the seventh day the battle was joined, and the sons of Israel killed of the Arameans. How many? A hundred thousand foot soldiers in one day it was normal to kill a hundred in a day but they got a hundred thousand soldiers in one day utterly wiped them out they defeated them conquered them but even more it says after that the rest fled to Aphek and to the city and the wall fell on 27,000 men who were left at that point now you just have creation now working against them that they went to seek shelter behind this wall here, the wall that, that governed around the city of Aphek. And they were like, okay, let's go. Maybe go behind the wall. Maybe we can find shelter there. When they come, we'll get some others. And we'll try to get some when we can. They try to go against the wall, and then now 27,000 die at that. There's no hope in this for them. Now, all the while, God here is displaying his glory as he's conquering this nation that seemed to be able to win. But they lose now. So now they lost the first battle, and then they lose in this second battle that's in the plains. And now at this point, they have like no theology for this. <laughs> okay, okay he's, maybe he's not the God of just the mountains. Maybe the God, like they have just no theology to explain their experience at this point. That they are left undone because God trampled them twice now. There's no hope. Now, up into this point now, is there any doubt on who Yahweh is? Is there any doubt at all from Mount Carmel to here? Is there any doubt the power and the might and the glory of Yahweh? None at all. But even more, who is worthy of worship in this account? Who is long-suffering in this account? Who is gracious and merciful toward unworthy people and an unworthy king at this point? 
You see how great God is and kind to step in and intervene when he does not have to and they don't even deserve it and yet he's still doing it time and time again. Why? So that they may know that he alone is Yahweh. The author of Kings makes it clear if Baal is the only competitive G-O-D, God at this point, if he's the only other God that they're serving at this point, he makes it clear that if God is greater than Baal, he is greater than all gods. In this, in this battle, Baal versus Yahweh, it's no competition. It's not even toe-to-toe that Yahweh wins every single time. And this is before Ahab's eyes, that he sees God working in the nation time and time again so that he would know Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. But what is he doing? Turning back to his idols. The Lord continues to give Ahab opportunities to serve the covenant God. Not to mention just amongst the nations. And as one person said it this way, in the revealed life of Ahab thus far, Ahab should know who his God is, whose God's messengers are, and who his enemies are. But tragically, he remains unmoved to everything he has witnessed. Because what should he have done at this point? He's had opportunity after opportunity. And in those opportunities, what has happened? He has seen God's glory before his eyes. It's seen in nature. Fire came down from heaven, consumed an altar, drenched with water. You've seen against nations where now nations were crumbled, not once, but twice. And all of these things, what is it detailing? The magnificent glory of God. He's had opportunity after opportunity. And what should he have done with those opportunities? Think about Israel's history. Whenever Israel has encountered the glory of God before their eyes, what should have been the response every single time? Think about the most reoccurring or the most referenced example in Scripture in the Old Testament of Pharaoh. In Exodus chapter 14, notice what Yahweh says to Israel before he conquers Pharaoh. He says in Exodus chapter 14, verse 17, As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. Why? So that they will go in after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, when I am honored. How? Through Pharaoh and through his chariots and his horsemen. Did you catch that? I'm going to harden them so that I will be honored. How? In Pharaoh, in the chariots, in the horsemen. What We know the story here. What's going to happen to these chariots and these horsemen? They're going to be utterly destroyed in the Red Sea. And God is saying here, I will be honored in their destruction. And so when you see that happening before your eyes, when you see them destroyed, you will know I am Yahweh. And at the end of that chapter, it says in verse 31, when Israel saw the great power which Yahweh had used against the Egyptians, the people feared Yahweh. And they believed in Yahweh and in his servant Moses. That that's what should have happened. When they saw the utter destruction of this wicked nation in Egypt, 
They feared Yahweh. He truly is Yahweh. Let's follow him and his servant Moses who will lead us to him. And yet when this happens before Ahab's eyes, what does he do? He does not do this. And so in our account in King, Kings chapter 1 Kings 20, Ahab sees this clearly. And the response should be to fear this Yahweh, to fear this God. But what happens? This third movement here is the betrayal. Because you would expect him to rightly respond. But what happens? Benadad has been utterly defeated. And he escaped. And it says he fled and came into the city. Now, at this point, it says in verse 31, his servant said to him, and by the way, I think Benadad needs to stop listening to his servants. <laughs> the same ones who said, let's try again in the plains. And now his servants, okay, here's our plan C, right? <laughs> I think he needs to stop listening to his servants because clearly, as it's Implicit in this chapter, the one you need to listen to is God's messengers, the prophets. But his servant says, his servant said to him, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please, let us put sackcloth on our loins and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will save your life. So here's now, let's, here's plan C now. We've heard now that Israel, they're, they're, they're pretty nice. They're merciful. So let's just put on sackcloth. It's the garment you would wear to demonstrate that you're in mourning, that you're, you're penitent. And let's put a rope around our heads. So they put ropes essentially around their necks to show themselves now we are sorry. Here's our lives. This is our only, this is our last chance at this point. If that doesn't work, right, maybe he's God of mountains and valleys. I don't know. Anyway, but if, let's just try this. Our last chance. Let's go to him and maybe he'll save our lives at this point. And so he follows that. He listens to them. And in a heartbreaking turn of events, here's the clog in the turning machine here. As the story is going here, this is what sets the, 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 the wood and the spoke of the bicycle. It stops the machine. It abruptly stops now. Because what you would expect here is a turn of heart. You see here the very opposite. How King Ahab just manifests in utter betrayal against this Yahweh who has saved him time and time again. Because they come out to him now. And so they girded their sackcloth, verse 32, on their loins and put ropes on their heads and came to the king of Israel and said, okay, let's try this. Let's, maybe he'll listen. Your servant, Benadad, says, please let me live. All right? So like, let's just, let's just beg. Please let me live at this point now. And they're like, hopefully this works. Like, hopefully this can get us out of this, this trouble now. Maybe this might be the key now. And this is like seriously a movie scene here. You're seeing them like, okay, yeah, let us live. And then what does Ahab say right after that? He said, oh, is he still alive? He's my brother. What? We'll come back to that. But he says, he's my brother. And in verse 33, the men took this to be an omen, like a sign, like, oh, he said brother. And quickly catching his word, he says, so it's like they're coming to him. He says, please let us live. He's my brother. Yes, your brother. Yeah, please let him live. Like, 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 they're taking care of this. They hear him say this, and they respond to that, like, oh, yes, he is your brother. Yes, brothers from another mother. Yes, please let him live. But in this scene here, we know what's going on behind the scenes here. And Ahab here just defeated them by God's mighty hand. They're coming to him, and they're saying, they're begging, please save his life. They're begging him. So he has the upper hand here, Ahab does. And he says this, they come to them, and he says what? Oh, yes, my brother. It's like, what foolish king at this point? Like, what's happening? Like, what are you doing with all of the revealed majesty that you've just beheld, Ahab? 
that now you're calling him a brother and them, they're wiser than he. <laughs> so, yes, your brother. Yes, he is. <laughs> he is your brother. And so at this point, King Ahab is like, yeah, bring him here. Bring him here, which is another foolish act. But for him to call him a brother should really just cause us to pause. Like, what are you thinking? Like, how hardened are you that you're willing to call these people your brother? Have you have no mind to your God? Your God, your, who your God should be? Have you have no mind to God's people? These should be your brothers. And yet you're calling this, these opponents of God your brother. This is just a sad response here. And so they say, yes, he's your brother. And so he says he brings, he asks him to bring the king to him. <clears throat> and then it says right after that in verse 30, 33, he says, go bring him to me. And Ben-Hadad came to him, and he took him up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities which my father took from your father, I will restore. And you shall make streets for yourself at Damascus, as my father made in Samaria. And so essentially he's saying here, yes, I know my father took land from your land. And this is probably likely referring back to chapter 15. He says, I know we basically took land. I'm going to give you some land back, give you some access to some streets. We should be good. Copacetic, right? We should be fine, which is not really much, considering all that he's been defeated already. It's not really much. But Ahab hears this, this agreement, and he says it's good to him. He says, after that, I will let you go with this, what word did he say there? Covenant, at the end of verse 34. I will let you go with this covenant. And so he made a covenant with him and let him go. You now have this wicked king who came to destroy you, who wanted your wife and your children, who wanted your money, who wanted all your houses, and now you make a covenant with this man. A covenant. As one person noted, he may have his eyes on the Assyrians, like I said, hopefully making a treaty with Syria will strengthen him against this threatening eastern power. We don't know all that Ahab was thinking. Well, we do know that he was seeking refuge again and essentially another idol, and this idol in the form of a nation. That he was seeking comfort to him. If I make an agreement with him, then maybe all will be well. But here, this will cost Israel dearly, this covenant. This action will cost Israel dearly in death and destruction and lead to the final fall of this northern kingdom. That he is making a covenant with a pagan nation. And essentially, he is opposing God by partnering with God's foes. Which leads to the fourth movement now. <clears throat> a severe blow to Ahab. Once you think of the, the story of David and, and Nathan, after Nathan, or David's sin, and what did God do by another prophet? He sent him to David and basically gave him a setup a story. If you remember that account, like how does he lead David to realize what David did with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite was wrong? Remember what God did to, to reveal that to him. He had Nathan give another story and basically say, hey, this, this man over here killed, murdered. What do you think of that? And David's like, death, that's wrong. And Nathan's like, David, you're the man. And essentially that happens here again with Ahab through another prophet. It says it's another unnamed prophet in verse 35. It says, now a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to another by the word of, the, of Yahweh, please strike me. But the man refused to strike him. Verse 36, then he said to him, because you have not listened to the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have departed from me, a lion will kill you. 
And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion found him and killed him. Then he found another man and said to him, please strike me. And the man struck, stri- struck him, wounding him. And so the prophet then went and waited for the king by the way and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. Now, before he gives this prophecy here to Ahab, on this illustration here, it's pretty random now where you see before he does that, this prophet says, comes to the man, or probably another prophet, and he says, hey, hit me. This other prophet says, uh, no, <laughs> not going to hit you. And he says, okay, well, because you've not listened to the voice of the Lord, a lion's going to take you out. Like, we're, we're reading this, and we're like, wait, wait a minute. How, how do we get from here? Lions and tigers and bears? Like, how do we get here? But essentially here in this setup, you see the, the prophet, speaking to the prophet, is implying here that he knew this was from the Lord because he says, you have not listened to the Lord, now you will be destroyed. And really the short lesson we see here before he gets to the thrust of the story is if the disobedience prophets do not escape God's punishment, then certainly wicked kings won't either. And that's what we're going to see with Ahab. Because he tells another prophet, strike me, and he does not listen. And so God steps in and judges him with the tiger, or with the lion. This happens another time in chapter 13 in the same book when another disobedient prophet doesn't listen to the Lord and a lion takes him out. The point being here, you must obey the word of Yahweh. And so if these prophets here are subject to it, then certainly these wicked nations and kings are subject to it as well, whether they like it or not. And so now the prophet gets another man to strike him, and he wounds him, and he bandages himself up, and he stands by the highway seeking for like another David and Nathaniel or Nathan situation here. And so King Ahab sees him, and look what he says. As, he, as the king passed by, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out with the midst of the battle, and behold, a man turned aside and brought a man to me. And said, guard this man. And if for any reason he is missing, then your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay for talent and silver. So I was told here, I need to guard this man's life, and if I lose him, then my life is gone. And so he says in verse 40, the prophet to Ahab, while your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. And the king of Israel said to him, well, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. You yourself said, if he says you lose him, you die. And so King Ahab says, that's you. You're dead. You're gone. And essentially this turns into, you are the man, Ahab. Verse 41, he took off the bandage. He hastily took the bandage away from his eyes. And the king of Israel recognized him that he was of the prophets. And he said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have not let go out of your hand the man whom I have devoted to destruction. Therefore, your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. Ahab, you did the same thing. I gave you a man for destruction, Ben-Hadad, and his kingdom, and you let Ben-Hadad go. So now your life for his, your people for his people. He's sealing now his judgment at this point. This is leading now to the ultimate destruction of Ahab and the northern kingdom of Israel. That because you have not listened. And so now Ahab hears this and he leaves sullen and vexed. But God is serious in his word at this point now because he gives him the final blow here to Ahab's disobedience. And he says, because you have not listened to the voice of the Lord, he says, essentially, you now are under judgment. He says, Benadad was devoted to destruction at this point. And in a sense, when you look at the language back early in the chapter, when God gave them to a hand, if you notice that in verse 13, it says, I will give them into your hand right this day. And then when he says it again, I will, in verse 20, 28, I will give all this great multitude into your hand 
and you shall know that I am the Lord. When he says that twice, that same verbiage is used in the Old Testament whenever God is giving a promise to his people to go in and destroy this wicked nation. And God says in those other accounts in the Old Testament, I will give them into your hand. And what we see in this chapter here is God doing the same thing with Ahab. Go, even though it's impossible, I will give them into your hand. He is devoting them to destruction. And so when Ahab heard that, what he should have known was to destroy them completely rather than making a covenant with him. And if you remember in the past, whenever Israel did not fully devote to destruction, what happened to them? They suffered punishment. Whenever they kept things that were under the ban, as it was called, whenever you devote them to destruction, you've got to utterly destroy them. And what happened when they didn't do that? They suffered. And they suffered with punishment. The language here has been used whenever he's handing over Israel and by implicating devoting that current inhabitants of that land to destruction. You see it in Joshua chapter 6, right before they go into to, to, to Jericho. And the God says to them, I will give them into your hand. This is not because God is a temperamental God or some kind of moral monster. But remember here, when God says he's going to do this, he told Israel beforehand, why am I doing this for you? Like, why am I giving them into your hand? Remember, he says it's not because that you're so good and you're so righteous. If you remember in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4, he says, do not say in your heart that when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, that, that that he's doing this because of your own righteousness. But he says, I'm doing this because of their wickedness that because of their sin i'm devoting them to destruction that i am completely wiping them out because they have transgressed against me and it's not because you are so great it's not because you are so righteous but because of their wickedness i am devoting them to destruction that god essentially is enacting judgment and really it's mercy whenever god withholds his judgment So whenever he does not swiftly take out, it's merely just a sign of his mercy because we all deserve utter destruction immediately for our transgression against this holy God. And so when when Ahab does not devote Ben-Hadad to destruction, he is transgressing against God because God handed him over to him, and yet he made a covenant with God's enemy. And any time God withholds his judgment, it's always an extension of his mercy. And make no mistake, because this is no morally innocent king here, Ben-Hadad. Because aside from his pagan idolatry, his desire to to seize women and children, and the the author provides references to his drunkenness twice in this chapter, he is guilty before God, just like all of us. Like, how far gone is he? He is wicked, he is a sinner, and just like all of us. And so to make any mistake that, that he doesn't deserve it, or he wasn't that bad, the point here is saying that everyone is under God's judgment and deserves God's punishment. And whenever God enacts that punishment in time, it is always just, because it's always deserved. And many times, Israel served as the instrument of God's judgment against these sinful nations. That they were merely just the instrument that God used to enact judgment. And so in a like manner, God would later allow another nation to march against Judah for his judgment. As Habakkuk chapter 1 recounts, when Habakkuk is saying, how are you going to use this other nation to go against your people? In other words, even Judah is not exempt from God's discipline because of their idolatry and their sin. So in a sense here, no one is exempt. And so when we begin to shudder and think that God would seek glory in the demise of the wicked here, even with King Ben-Hadad, I think we fail to see his holiness. We fail to see his holiness. We fail to see his prerogative. And by consequence, we, we fail to see his mercy. 
Because just like in Luke chapter 13, remember here, when, when people come up to Jesus in Luke chapter 13, and they recount here, if you, were, if you recall here, it says, while we were offering sacrifices, there are many people who were shattered, their blood was spilt at the hand of Pilate. And they come up to Jesus essentially saying here, Lord, what do you say about this, this, this unjust atrocity? That these many innocent people, their blood was spilled. And you remember how Jesus responds in Luke 13? He says, not only he responds to that, but he brings up another account. He says, well, what about the tower that fell in Siloam and many died there? Yeah, not, just, not just that account where they were killed at the sacrifice by Pilate, but what about when the tower fell on these other innocent people, quote unquote? So he brings up another account. And do you remember the Lord's response basically to them? In other words, how could you allow this to happen? Jesus says, repent or you too will perish. He doesn't respond to the folly of wondering, Lord, how could you allow this? But rather he responds and says, the lesson here is you need to repent or you too will perish. Because he says in that same account, are they worse sinners than them in Jerusalem? The answer is no. But you need to repent or you too will perish. And back in Kings chapter 20, when we see Yahweh acting in the same way that he's historically acted in, in, in history, and when he did act in that way, like when he delivered Israel from Egypt, and they responded and feared the Lord, how do we see them acting now? When he acts again miraculously and delivers them, how do we see them acting here? Fearing the Lord? No. We see them now still with the hardened heart turned away from Yahweh. We see the exact opposite happening. That Ahab failed to repent. Ahab failed to glorify Yahweh's name in all of this. And his propensity now for pouting, which he does at the end of this chapter, God says, I'm going to bring judgment to you and your household. He walks away sullen and vexed. vexed. He's basically just angry and just downcast. And that's always his response. And because that's never really good for him, because we'll see next week, when he responds in that way, what does Ahab do with that? But before you even get there, I want you to think about here, whenever God displays his glory and his majesty, the response should be from the observer is to bow the knee to this Yahweh. Because remember here, what's the main point he's getting at here? The preservation and exaltation of God's name, even in the presence of wickedness. And so none of the characters here in the story exalt God's name, right? None of the characters, Benadad, Ahab, no one in this story here exalts God's name. But can we ask the question, was God's name exalted? Yes, it certainly was exalted, even in this account, when people failed to bow the knee. That his name was exalted. And this is really a comfort to those who have taken shelter in this Yahweh. That we know that God who is in control, he's in control of all nations, all rulers, all authority, all creation, every single thing in this world is under his sovereign hand. And so for us as children of this Yahweh, this is a supreme comfort even when we view the rebellion of those who slap God in the face and refuse to bow the knee. This is a comfort to us because we realize who rules. Yahweh always wins. Always. That even though Ahab fails to bow the knee, Yahweh wins. Baal is no competition. No false god is a competition to the true and living God. Yahweh always wins. In this ongoing saga with Ahab for these many chapters, the main point you see, Yahweh always wins. 
And so why spend a considerate time on King Ahab in this book of Kings, as I asked in the beginning? Why spend so much time on this wicked king out of all the other kings he could have spent time on? Because now as Israel now is reading this, and this book likely written during their exile, which was brought about because of their idolatry, they're reading this and they're saying, this is why we're here. God's judgment is true. God is the only God. Yahweh is true. Look, look at this King Ahab. Look what he did. He erected the Asherah and all the idols. And what do we do? We kissed them. We bowed down to them. And really, this wicked, hardened heart of Ahab characterizes the heart of hardened Israel. That they're seeing and they're reading this here. This is really the pinnacle of our wickedness. That it starts from the top down. That this wicked king here who set up these idols. And what do we do? We followed sore and we bowed down too. As they're reading this, they're seeing here, God's word always wins. Yahweh is God. Yahweh is the only God. This is why we're not in that land anymore. Look how stubborn and hard-hearted we were. This count begins to solidify the downfall of Ahab while also characterizing the downfall of Israel. And so God punishes. He's going to punish Ahab, Israel, Ben-Hadad, and Syria. And we see that God rules these persons and these nations, that he wins against Baal every time, against every false god, against godless nations, and against wicked kings. And I don't want you to neglect to see how God is merciful and faithful in the face of this faithlessness. Keep in mind how, how faithful and merciful God is, that even when he is not acknowledged as Yahweh, he is still faithful to preserve their lives just another day for them to despise him still. But how faithful and merciful God is to this reprobate Ahab. He gives him time and opportunity again and again to bow the knee, and he does not respond. And it's no different from the state that we're in even today, where God in his sovereignty, God in his glory, has given sinful man the opportunity to see that he is God. You just look around you, look at the skies, look at creation, look at the way our bodies are made up, look at just how he, he rules in kindness and brings us the sun, brings the cloud, brings the rain. Look how good this God is. And what does man do with this revelation? They turn to idols. And yet God is merciful in revealing his glory because when you see that glory on display, the only right response should be to bow the knee. And yet we have bowed to idols. We've bowed to creation. That God remains faithful and merciful and kind, offering opportunities to turn and to bow the knee, and they do not do it. And we are no different today. That God's glory cannot be tarnished. That even for those who fail to bow the knee to this God, even for those who see his glory on display time and time again, even though he mercifully gives opportunities to see his goodness, his provision, his sovereignty, his salvation, his son, even though we see that, what does man do with that knowledge? They turn away to other gods. And yet God remains merciful. He remains the winning character. He is the only character. He is Yahweh, the only God. And here in this account here, you see, even though this King Ahab failed to see it, his glory remains on display. And even though Ahab did not see it at this point there, 
He will see it eventually. That this God is a God who cannot be won because he always wins. And at the same time, he is a refuge for his people. He never loses control. God never drops the ball. And even in Israel's tragic exile, he's still sovereign over their lives. That God remains in control. That his glory is here for us to see clearly. And for us as children of Yahweh, when God revealed his name, he revealed his, his son to us, when we see him, we know him as this Yahweh. We know Christ as Yahweh in flesh, God, very God. What a blessing for us to know as children of this Yahweh who he is. And if he is Yahweh, will he ever lose? Whose hands are you in, beloved? That if you are a child of this God who conquers kingdoms, who conquers nations, it does not matter what it looks like today. It does not matter how many chariots and horses are lining up. It does not matter what awaits before us in our eyes because we know who rules this world and we know who's going to win. That he is God. He's always in control. And even though the nations rage, wars ramp up, the foundations seem to tremble, Yahweh is always in control. And not only is he more powerful, but as the proverb says, he even turns the hearts of kings wherever he wishes in his hands. That even these wicked rulers of our day today have no power except what God has given to them. And even them in their hearts, he says, I turn their hearts wherever I want. It's like in my hand. There's no one outside of my control. What a comfort that is to God's people, that even to know that this God rules and he reigns, and ultimately I'm in his hands. And the only response is to worship and fear him and know that he will enact whatever he enacts in his own time, that this God rules, that we take refuge in this God, that he is who he is, and we take refuge in him as we have seen him clearly in Christ this Christ who absorbed the full, the full hatred, the full wrath of God against sin against this, on this Christ. And we look about how can I know this Yahweh personally? How can I know him? How do I know him? How do I take delight in him? Is remembering this Yahweh who is a Yahweh who by no means excuses any sin but has poured out his, the wrath against sin fully on his son, Christ. And because of that, we have refuge in this God. As this proverb says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run in and we are safe. That we have refuge in this Yahweh who will enact punishment ultimately, who will destroy all of his foes. We have refuge in this Yahweh because his son took on the full wrath. And that is good news for us. That we don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know this Yahweh is the only God and no one can stand against him. We stand in good hands. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your sovereignty and for your goodness. And we thank you, God, that you do remain in control. In this, Lord, we need to be reminded of this, to trust in you, to to cling to you, and to rest in you, that you remain God and the only God. So, Father, I pray as we struggle to even see your goodness, to see your glory, and to truly trust in it fully as we ought to, I pray, God, that we would be refined to know that you truly are our refuge and our only refuge. This is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.